Good morning, gentlemen. How's everybody doing? Living the dream. We're here a little bit earlier today from our perspective. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely still morning. So, all good. Nice and sunny out. Yep. Exactly. Got the morning coffee, good, right, Jordan? Good day. Yeah, it's almost noon for me. So, I got my <laughs> early afternoon coffee. The ice coffee all, going on. All wired coffee up. Number two. Awesome. All right, guys. Yes, well, um, I think we can kind of just maybe dive right in. I know, Sammy, you said you wanted to kind of kick us off this week and had something more on the, the fun side of things, I think it was the words you used. So, uh, what do yeah. you have for us? Well, it's maybe not fun for the business owner, but for us, it's it's always fun to talk about something a little bit different. Actually, this one's a little bit more low tech than we're used to, used to but it's an insider threat story. So I thought that was kind of interesting because uh, we don't always read about those or uh, and it's a lot harder to detect when those happen. So uh, it was interesting to, to see this one in the news. But uh, basically, the owner of the uh, Jimmy John's franchise out in Sunset Hills, Missouri, uh, was a victim of employee embezzlement. It to- totaled around about $100,000. Uh, basically, this store wasn't incentivizing customers uh, to insist upon receiving a receipt. So uh, the owner was unaware that Basically, when they were receiving payment for a meal, the employees could simply cancel the transaction, provide the food and the change, and just pocket the rest of the money or the cost of the meal itself. Um, And so he noticed this by basically uh, realizing the discrepancies in the days that they worked versus the day that he worked and noticed that the daily revenue on the days that he worked were a lot higher. Uh, so while not a VEC attack or anything like that, it's just kind of, uh, an interesting case in how, you know, a low tech scam, uh, and insider threats are still very relevant today, even at the small business level. Um, so, you know, in this situation, oftentimes organizations are kind of reluctant to reach out or involve authorities because they feel that, uh, it may do more, the media coverage might do more harm than good. Uh, so in this scenario, um, and how most employers tend to deal with this is, or should deal with this is, uh, to basically contact the IRS as they can discreetly handle the situation by performing an audit to investigate the investment, uh, notifications from the employer. Uh, but in general, though, this, I think this kind of leads to a larger conversation about insider threat, uh, how to combat it and what organizations should kind of implement to, you know, prevent these things from occurring. Uh, whether that be, you know, means of detection, deterrence, or, uh, you know, a response program for when these things occur. Uh, in this particular case, I think, uh, you know, the, the solution was somewhat elegant and simple, and that would just be to incentivize customers to ask for receipts. Uh, that way, uh, they, they can do uh, adequate correlation and, and, and audit of the, of the daily revenue. Uh, other things they could uh, potentially look into are things like, you know, screen capture and video log correlation uh, to identify discrepancies throughout the day. So, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of an interesting insider threat one here. Yeah, you so, know, uh, was this a, a high-level employee or a low-level employee? Was this a minimum wage worker or somebody who was who, who had authority? This is actually funny you mentioned it's a, it was a uh, management couple. So they, they were a husband and wife who were the managers of the location. So they, they definitely have uh, privileged access. That's the most ironic part. Um, when I was reading the article is that basically they wanted to have the same days off. So the, the owner stepped in for those two days and he's like, it's kind of funny that I have more cash coming in these days than right. the other days, but this right. is a good reason to do job rotations. 
separation of duties. Organizations have the separation of duties in place because banks do this. They rotate through who has access to certain things. The mandatory vacation clauses where you have to take the two weeks off and other people have to take on those job duties and responsibilities that helps prevent these type of scenarios. But I love the, the $10 offer or if you don't get a receipt, get a free meal type of thing because that really does bring up the whole thing. But I'm also noticing a lot of places you go to, they don't even take cash anymore. Right. So that gets rid of that issue overall. Definitely yeah, a harder scam to pull if, if you're not accepting cash. Yeah, I mean, if it's all done through the credit card, right? I mean, it's all digitized and it's easy to be transacted and, and traced essentially, right? And most places will say, hey, like, do you want a receipt on these, you know, credit card type things? And it's like, hey, no, or email me, which... I think we all get enough spam. We don't want to do that. But um, like this makes a good reason as to why they would do that. Or if you are paying cash, just hand you the receipt regardless whether you ask for it or not. That way, you know, it's like, hey, this has been fully optimized and transacted. And I think to your point, Brian, is like, in my opinion, I think, you know, there's less and less cash out there just in general people using it. Um, it's another reason people are using, you know, digital payments like, say, Apple Pay or, or credit cards or whatever. Um, it's a little bit more you know, robust in these types of, of issues moving forward. So it's just an interesting, like you said, Tammy, a little bit of low tech approach, but, uh, you know, potentially also if, if the team was a little bit more, Hey, let's not take the same days off and maybe got a little bit too greedy with it. Um, probably could have gone on even longer, honestly, too. So. Yeah. And I'm sure they could have uh, fine tuned their access control policies a little bit more or, or added additional monitoring onto the systems themselves. But I think for the most part, uh, to your to your point, it was kind of a uh, a really elegant, low tech solution to solve this this, this problem. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I, th I think it's kind of a uh, an ongoing battle against that mentality of a malicious insider to to kind of really uh, mitigate that, and everything else is just kind of compensating controls uh, around it. So, uh, yeah, very very interesting story. One thing I was thinking about is that uh, you know if this was perpetrated by lower level employees, they may have needed authorization in order to cancel the transactions. That way it wasn't reported, but because of their uh, privileged position within the organization, they were able to take advantage of that. And so even if there was uh, the, the uh, strategies put into place that we've discussed, you still have the challenge of if you have untrustworthy people in management or positions of authority inside of your organization, you still run the risk of them evading uh, and, and mitigating the, the intent of those controls. So in a cybersecurity perspective, that's very important as well to recognize the importance of uh, not only hiring good people and paying them well enough that they are not incentivized to take from the till, but also to be uh, monitoring and managing their access. And like you said, cycling through the responsibilities there, I think would help a lot. Oh, they were paid yeah. well for Missouri. Yeah. I mean, they right. were making well over $100,000. I think that was probably combined, but still the, the owner had paid them a lot of money for sure. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I didn't speak to it in the, uh, in the article, but I'm really curious what uh, the background check data pulled in, if they had any kind of criminal history or anything like that. It's, it's not always the case that it's somebody with a criminal background that, that performs these kinds of uh, attacks. So, you know, just a, a they saw an opportunity and maybe ran with it, you know? So like you yep. said, yep. low tech sometimes pays off, but you know, in the end, um, it's still a, a fraud to the, to the business. So, you know, that type of thing does suck for the, the small business owner because 
Like, I think um, the way his sign was written was pretty like, hey, I have to close for a few days to handle this. And he's still paying like franchise fees and other things. So it's uh, just unfortunate really overall. So, Well, that's a huge one is the business impact of the franchise fees. I mean, that could sink you right there because that's Mm -hmm. usually a good chunk of your revenue. Well, not revenue, but the profit ends up going back to the franchise itself. And so he's stuck having to pay that even though he didn't collect the money. Yep. Yep. So, so Sammy, may, may be fun, but not so fun, sir. <laughs> it's not, a unique one. Well, now yeah. I'm hungry and want a sandwich. Uh, <laughs> I love that Jimmy John's, though. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, oh, funny. Shade I didn't say him. where, but... Okay, there you go. All right, what? that's funny. Well, shall I bring right. it to something a little bit more serious here? Let's go for it, Jordan. What do you got? Turn it up. You know, I was reading this uh, press release from the NSA. It's actually the NSA uh, CISA... Uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Administration and the FBI uh, put out a joint cybersecurity advisory uh, last week indicating that uh, they've identified these Chinese hacking groups and they specifically said Chinese backed. So that suggests that they are working on authority of the Chinese government, the People's Republic of China. Uh, These groups have actually infiltrated network service providers, so internet service providers They didn't name names, but I'm assuming that it's probably some pretty large groups. Apparently what these threat actors have been doing is identifying vulnerabilities within the ISP themselves uh, and exploiting them not only to gain access to the information that the ISPs can provide and also to be able to siphon uh, traffic that's going through it so then they can monitor and exfiltrate data that's going through the ISP network, but also so that they could uh, use their ISP infrastructure as the attacker's command and control uh, infrastructure, or or at least to proxy their own traffic through these trusted networks. And this highlights just such an incredibly, first of all, a complex operation that these threat actors are going through. But secondly, the the importance of of securing this this supply chain, uh, the communication chain, and uh, a, a trusted service provider like this can really lead to the exploitation of innumerable downstream customers or even unaffiliated people, uh, organizations, because now they are seeing traffic coming from a trusted ISP without naming names and saying, well, that's from that ISP infrastructure that should be trusted uh, transaction there. They even uh, compromised ISP accounts, uh, got into the radius servers. Uh, They were able to modify the ISP routers Uh, so that then they were able to route, set up their own routes, uh, capture traffic that was going through and exfiltrate data out of that network, uh, out of the uh, ISP infrastructure into their own controlled infrastructure. And the the press release here has this really great graphic that kind of gives an overlay of how they've used publicly available tools or even commercial tools to scan for these vulnerabilities in the network devices, uh, gained access through unpatched internet facing services, obtained access, server credentials, modified the routers and performed their own attacks there. Um, So it's just another uh, example here of previously known, already publicly known vulnerabilities on publicly facing infrastructure, very critical publicly facing infrastructure that was exploited by threat actors and highlights the importance of performing penetration tests and vulnerability assessments, not just internally, but also on your external systems as well. Yeah, this is a very, I say scary one and kind of, you know, somewhat near and dear to my heart, you know, coming from like a networking background and having worked with 
large ISPs over the years and, and, and the complexity they have. And, and they are very big prime targets, like you say, right? I mean, there's sometimes thousands or 10,000s of nodes that they manage. There's hundreds of engineers in there at different levels. There's, you know, massive access to be gained. And, you know, packets don't lie, as we kind of like to say, right? So if you can kind of control the traffic and redirect it and, you know, siphon things one way, I mean, you can see everything, right? I mean, as simple as that. So you can gather a lot of intel on people. You can gather a lot of intel around, you know, your potential target, if you will. You can, to your point, use it as a attack vector with, you know, tens of thousands of IPs and, and essentially kind of bots, if you will, to to do that attack. So, uh, yeah, very, very scary stuff out there. And I think we've seen similar, you know, kind of this is somewhat with the T-Mobile the issue from, you know, several months ago where it was a few, I believe, like unpatched kind of public facing routers that, that were gaining access to and then essentially, you know, jump through the network right at that point. So um, very scary stuff out there and something that needs to be, in my opinion, you know, really monitored and ISPs have a pretty big diligence to like the public, in my opinion, because we all have to rely on them for our, our internet access, right? And it's a, it's a very, very scary system. And the other thing too, it's like, if you think about how the internet really works is it hasn't changed in 30 plus years. I mean, a lot of the protocols are the same. Yeah, there's some, you know, security around them, but, you know, speaking holistically, there's a lot of, you know, potential gaps in just how, you know, these types of large scale systems really work and how they play together. So uh, interesting one out there for sure. Yep. And it comes back to some of the micro segmentation conversations, just thinking about having those management networks separated as well, and then being able to authenticate continuously who's accessing the network and do they still have authorization to be in there? I mean, I, you go and disable an account and the token still works for several hours before it tries to go refresh. I mean, that's the type of world we live in, but we got to get a little more instant when we detect those things and we got to be able to, to turn them off faster. Well, Brian, uh, looking at the top ne network exploits that were highlighted by the NSA here, we've got multiple CVEs from Cisco dating back to 2018. Citrix, Draytech, D-Link, Fortinet, Mikrotik, uh, Netgear, this uh, RCE, remote uh, code execution vulnerability on the Netgear device was from 2017. Uh, and then also- Nobody Pulse patches networking. Netgear. Well, it, there's a whole Still, list here, so it's not even just Netgear. Uh, the point being that I'm making is that these are known vulnerabilities that ha have existed for up to five years now. So uh, there's definitely some patch management that needs to occur with these organizations. Totally agree. Yeah, it's a recurring theme on this show. Yeah, right. Well, it also makes me wonder how many unnecessary services they have available on the internet anyways. It's like, are these unpatched because nobody's using them? That's often the real reason is that they're not aware that these things are out of date because the last time anybody used this system was in 2017. So. I think there's uh, something to be said about, you know, going through and actually disabling or minimizing your attack surface here. Because uh, if they have all of these different things exposed, Netgear, Cisco, Citrix, D like how many of these are critical to your uh, perimeter environment and need to actually be accessible from the internet? So, um, you know, disabling external management capabilities and out-of-band management networks is also like a big part of this, uh, in my opinion. And we don't well, know who, who these ISPs are. Some of them may be major, some of them may be minor. So there's those considerations to take in, in mind too, that uh, managing or even even knowing what your network inventory is, is harder yeah. the more complex your, your organization is. 
and also harder the smaller your organization is if you don't have those resources. Yep. That's why I'm a huge fan of having a VPN and locking down those services and not being publicly yeah. enabled. I mean, you go back to the pandemic, people were walking out the door and enabling RDP protocol so they could remote right back into the network with no VPN on. You're leaving more attack surface there. And I'm not saying yeah. VPNs are perfect by any means. They, they're subject to their own vulnerabilities, but it's a start. Yeah, I think same to your, say just real quick, I think to your point, you know, about reducing your kind of surface risk on the outside, you know, sometimes there's things that we leave, you know, protocols running or ports open or, you know, things turned on by default that were maybe useful, you know, 10, 15 years ago that are still kind of default. And it's like, hey, we should be turning these things off. And, you know, if I think about from an ISP perspective, you have this kind of concept of security versus like network break fix, like, you know, think about how many tickets and calls they get like, hey, my customer's angry, they can't get to the internet. Sometimes you maybe have a, a different kind of engineer or skill set level in there just saying, well, let me make these changes, not really uh, you know, aware of the unintended maybe security consequences of, okay, well, it works now, customer's happy, cool, let's get them back and running and not going in there and saying, well, let's go ahead and tighten this back up you know, down the road. So there's a lot of I think, process too that can be improved in those situations. Well, a common one that's left open nowadays is port 80. And the reason they yeah. leave it open is for the redirect. Well, most browsers and devices nowadays will automatically try SSL. So that's yeah. one of those things that could go back and start looking at, well, can we just turn it off? Is it really nece necessary to have that redirect in place anymore? Yeah. Good stuff. Um, so kind of maybe going back in time a little bit here, um, only just a few years ago from 2019, I think we were all aware of a pretty significant breach that happened that year with uh, Capital One. Um, well, a little bit of updates on this one. Um, the person, you know, basically found responsible and, you know, they could be charging her and burning through everything has been officially convicted um, from a, a wire fraud and a few other accounts from the, you know, 100 million, um, you know, essentially records that were breached from Capital One in 2019. So it sounds like the, um, you know, the, the juror took about seven or eight days to kind of go through everything. Uh, no convictions been essentially sentenced yet. It's happening in September, uh, but it could be potentially up to 25 years in prison. It was a pretty significant, you know, event that happened. Um, I think we were all aware of this at different points in time. It was all over the news. It raised a lot of questions about, you know, consumer security, cybersecurity, um, and it kind of, I guess in a, in a positive light, if you want to look at it this way, it did bring a lot of attention to like this field. Um, and, and you know, I think it allowed people to kind of really step up in some regard, but it's just unfortunate it takes these, these large scale events and, and whatnot. So um, just some updates on that one, that things are you know, moving forward with that case and there'll be some sentencing here in, in September. So we'll see kind of what happens, but um, you know, it does show that, you know, cyber crime from, from a, prosecution perspective is still to be something that's very serious and taken not very lightly. Um, so I think we've had kind of conversations about this in the past about, you know, hacking back and, you know, potentially kind of going back after people and, you know, this kind of whole concept of cyber warfare um, that has been escalating. It's just showing us that, you know, the, the, at least from like a U.S. perspective, they're taking it very seriously and how they, you know, potentially prosecute and, you know, assess time and penalty to these situations. So interesting stuff yeah not worth it i mean the career is done yeah like 
the amount of money and stuff you could have made after all that it just yeah gone from that perspective and if i remember maybe this person was found I'm a little rusty on it cause it's been a little while but i i think didn't they have some drops in their vpn that they were trying to shield and that's how they were able to detect this person yeah it was also a little, a little bit of bragging too i think like on github there were some brags like hey you know this was done um and then there was a pretty, I guess as Sandy would say, like not a very good opsec and kind of like a, a a a decent trail, if you will, left along type of thing. So a little bit of that, um, hey, maybe it wasn't always about money and about the notoriety of like I could do this, which we've seen in increasing cases and things like that too. So but just a reminder for those of you out there, Capital One was fined $80 million um, in 2020. And then in December 21, they agreed to pay out about 190 million dollars in class action lawsuit plus the cost of everything else so that was a very significant financial and you know um, business impact to capital one over the years and and compromise as well as brand reputation so again you know just shows you how impactful these things can be you know not just from a monetary perspective but to everything behind the scenes so i want to add that uh Everyone who was involved at Capital One in, in investigating this, as well as the law enforcement in order to bring this person to justice, they were all very lucky that in this case, it was not organized crime because organized crime would have laid much lower. Uh, in my view, I did a case study on this for my previous employer. In my personal view, this person wanted to get caught. Uh, their handle was erratic. They were well known on hacker forums they were open about the attacks that they were performing, if not the particular targets, but it was clear from the information that they provide where the information was coming from. Uh, they kept on putting out information at an increasing and in, uh, pace and rate until they were caught. And it seemed from my personal view that this person was almost upset that they weren't getting the, the notoriety, the recognition for their skills, for their knowledge, for their ability to exploit this. Um, they weren't trying to, there, there, were, there were some instances where this person offered the data for sale, but it to me didn't seem like that was their priority. Right. Uh, whereas if this was a, a hacking group associated with a nation state, North Korea, Russia, China, just as examples, but also Vietnam and several others, uh, they would have been exploiting this in, in depth. And they would have been uh, concealing the fact that they had this access and this information and squirreling it away for later use. Furthermore, it would have been much harder to bring this person to justice, even if they, even if they had been uh, identified, because this, this perpetrator remained living in the United States. Um, so it's, it's remarkable that we have this much information about this incident, but it's kind of due to the fact that this was one of those rare lone wolf attacks rather than a, an organized crime kind of attack or, or a, right. a nation state perpetrated attack. Or is that all part of the PSYOP and are they just a scapegoat? To the I know, right? I thought about that. <laughs> when, I was you know doing my, when I was doing my case study, I was in disbelief that uh, how much information they had put out there. And there were even other, other, you know, gray hat people in conversations with this person saying, you're going too far. You're, you're not doing, what are you doing kind of thing. And they just kept going doesn't surprise me right well i think that's a good segue into another legal related thing here from the department of justice uh released that the russian botnet was disrupted in an international cyber operation and this was in our own backyard um 
for some of us here in San Diego. And so essentially it was a botnet, uh, Russian botnet known as RSOX, which had millions of computers under its control. And we partnered together with Germany, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom to dismantle that whole infrastructure. It originally started uh, by targeting IoT devices, so that's Internet of Things, that it was going after, which was simple things like industrial control systems, time clocks. Uh, our routers are back on the list again that we were just discussing. Right. The audio video streaming devices. I mean, how many times does anybody not patch those? I mean, they don't really do a good job of keeping up with those. And then uh, my personal favorite is smart garage door opener. Um, are some of the initial attack vectors. But what they found was approximately uh, back in uh, 2017, they identified 325,000 compromised victims throughout the world with numerous devices within San Diego County, which I thought was, uh, was very interesting here in our own backyard. But what they had hit was uh, universities, a hotel, a TV studio, an electronics manufacturer, as well as home and, and individual, uh, home businesses and individuals that were, were hit in this. And so the government used, with permission, uh, government-controlled computers, in other words, like a honeypot that they deployed um, at three of the, the sites and were able to identify uh, six victims within San Diego and uh, work to take down this whole whole network overall. So I think that's very interesting to see going after Russia again and then all the other uh, countries that got involved to back this up um, to help take this these uh, criminals down. Because, I mean, this is the gateway in, right? You get the botnet, they control those devices, and essentially they have their whole network that they can utilize from that point moving forward. Yeah, Sam, I mean, are you I think... familiar with this group? The RSOX group? Uh, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't I, heard I, of them. Neither have I. I, I definitely have uh, I've seen this kind of botnet before in action, but yeah, this specific group is definitely new to me. I haven't seen them on the forums. Sorry, what were you saying, Derek? I was just going to say, I mean, I, th I think it's kind of interesting that we're still seeing these, you know, joint efforts across the board, across nations, and you know, countries and things like that, showing that, you know, we still can kind of work together in some regards to really go after the, the much larger, you know, cyber crime picture. I think, Brian, to your point, you know, there's that, you know, constant worry about the IoT devices and what's on your network. And, you know, you, like you kind of jokingly saying, you know, like these media players and, you know, I always ask people like, hey, hey like when was the last time you patched like your smart TV? And they're like, well, never, like exactly. Like, like that's the point, right? So, it's always that case of, you know, what's on your network? Are you patching it? Are you, are you scanning for these things? You know, um, if these things can't be patched, can we isolate them? You know, so a lot of, uh, a lot of mitigation kind of tips and tricks there where we can look at, but, um, you know, these things are pretty large in scale and it kind of almost ties back to, you know, the, the ISP story, right. About, you know, if you can get access to those ISPs, there's lots of quote unquote bots there too, right. And endpoints you can leverage. So definitely kind of go hand in hand on that one. Well, I'm taking a cool. look at the, an archive copy of their homepage right now. Uh, the, if you go to their homepage right now, it just has a disclaimer from the FBI saying that this website has been seized, or DOJ, I should say. Sorry, I um, won't then, click your link. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, Smart. It's, archive, it's archive.org. 
trustarchive.org or not. Um, but I'm looking at their an archive copy of their website, and it's it looks like a legitimate business. I was thinking about the name R Socks, you know, Socks Proxy, uh, and that's something that's commonly set up in order to route traffic or to be as a, uh, a command and control server by an attacker here. And so they they describe it's got a beautiful website here with a, a Christmas theme from the date that I'm looking at it here, and it says the R Socks Project: Professional Solutions for Providing a Personal Privacy. Register now and try it for free. General service statistics, 150K residential properties, 290K exclusive properties, 40 personal proxy countries, 30 VPN servers, uh, 30 VPN server countries. They've got their news page, very, very uh, well-polished website. Um, and I can see how this could be used for good or for evil. Uh, and perhaps they were intending to cater to uh, that, that more evil side of it here. But uh, it just goes to show you, like it says, see our uh, discussion on Black Hat World forums, uh, exploit.in, nulled.to. So apparently they're, they're making it relatively known up front that they, aren't, that they are associated with the gray hat side of things at best, um, but quite, quite a, a professional web page here. Yeah, I find it funny that it's not even on the Tor network. I mean, I'm sure there's a version of it, but it's just, it, right. you know, available on the on the public internet. So it's, you know, kind of interesting to see that they're hiding in plain sight here. Uh, and then to your point about running as a legitimate business, I, they even have bulk pricing. Like it's like $30 uh -huh. per day for access to 2,000 proxies or 200 per day for access to 90,000 proxies. So you know, they're, they're coming up with legitimate business cases to uh, meet people's budget. <laughs> so I, I prefer uh, the exclusive plan myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the all inclusive built in. Yeah. Unlimited. If you got a, if you got a nation state uh, bankrolling you, then go for it. Well, it just shows kind of goes back to our, our, our continuing topic that a lot of these are run like legit businesses, right? I mean, they have like a whole sales team, a tech support team, very well thought out pricing and methodical. So, you know, they are like run as close to a legit business as possible, just on the other side of the uh, the coin, if you will. So, yeah. yeah, it's like a front. It's like, hey, here are the legitimate services. But by the yeah. way, if you want our access to our secret menu. <laughs> <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, I think everybody, uh, this was a really good you know show this week and uh, appreciate everyone's input and you know, to our viewers out there, like, subscribe, comment, let us know what you're going to see out there. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to everybody soon. Right on. See you next right. time. Stay safe out right. there. Take care. Stay safe in cyberspace. All right. Take care.